This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. This week, what's the mood like on the ground in Ukraine and Russia? Plus, is Germany ready to tackle its dependence on Russian gas? And finally, are traditional British brands losing their soul? First up, for this week's cover piece, Owen Matthews asks whether the invasion of Ukraine will mean the end of Putin's regime. And in this week's Spectator Diary, Freddie Gray reports on pride and paranoia on the streets of Lviv. They join us now down the line to talk about Russia's future and Ukraine's present. Owen, in the magazine this week, you examine where Putin's vulnerabilities lie. Could the war in Ukraine be fatal, ultimately, for his presidency? Well, ultimately, is unfortunately the key of the core of that question. As I say in the piece, yes, I think this is the beginning of the end of his presidency, but not necessarily quickly and not necessarily um, easily. And uh, there's going to be a long end game, unfortunately, uh, for one very simple reason, and that is there is no challenger. There's no clear other source of authority or of power um, in the Kremlin or really anywhere in Russian politics. Um, He's done such a good job of uh, imposing his personal rule. And as we saw um, him in action in the room during that sort of extraordinarily sort of crazy Security Council meeting just before on the eve of the invasion, he's basically went out of his way to humiliate all of his most senior and distinguished uh, people of his entourage, and or rather not humiliate them, well, he, humiliate, he did humiliate a couple of them, but uh, but most importantly, he sort of made them all parrot his line and stand up and explain why they agreed with him. I mean, it was sort of very, sort of almost Saddam Hussein-like tactics. So he's uh, he created a very effective autocracy, and all of the media messaging and everything over years has built up the image of him as the good czar and the sort of ultimate saviour of Russia. In fact, I mean, several of his at least one of his satraps has said in the past, like, Putin is Russia. So in that sense, it's actually very hard to see any kind of rising challenge. As I also explained in the magazine, I mean, Russian leaders have been deposed before in various ways, you know, by popular revolt, by sort of inside Kremlin coups, um, like Nikita Khrushchev, for instance. But uh, there was an alternative power structure when Khrushchev was. Uh, there, were, there were alternative people uh, when Khrushchev was quietly removed after a national humiliation of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1964. Um, I don't really see who could step in to take over from Putin at this point. And therefore, I think that however disastrously the economy goes, however much the sanctions bite, uh, however much the middle class suffers, because it's going to be the middle class who, of course, tend to be the most Putin sceptical who suffer most. I don't really um, see a a scenario where this is going to lead to a sort of gigantic popular backlash, thousands of people on the street, because Putin is just too politically strong. His media messaging machine is extremely effective. And uh, perhaps most sadly, most importantly, his machine of repression and of crushing dissent, uh, public dissent on the streets or online, is terrifyingly effective. On the point about the bite of 
sanctions. There seems to be some hope by quite a few commentators in the in the West that the sanctions might affect the harmony of Putin's inner circle. But do you think that that hope is misplaced? I don't think it's completely crazy. I mean, there's there's definitely going to be discontent in the Russian elite, and there's sort of horror, in fact, in the in the Russian in the Russian business community about sanctions. But I think that for the the, the fundamental, uh, I mean, one of the things that's been most mentioned and. Uh, in the British media, something that the cabinet members, Liz Truss and Boris Johnson, have been signalling very strongly is that somehow punishing the oligarchs is going to help topple Putin. Now, that uh, is a profound fallacy, in fact, because um, if in the, indeed the word oligarch is sort of rather misused. In fact, it's completely misused because oligarch refers to a class of very powerful businessmen who really did run the Kremlin in the 90s. They were richer and more powerful than Boris Yeltsin collectively, or so they thought. And uh, therefore, they were the oligarchs of Russia. They were the powers behind the throne. Since Putin, the first thing that Putin did on coming to power was destroy the oligarchs. That's the point. All the oligarchs, that all the billionaires that remained, uh, remained rich and retained their fortunes just at Putin's pleasure. So the idea that somehow the, the oligarchs could do something against Putin's regime is, uh, I think, it's just a fundamental sort of category error and was a misunderstanding of how modern Russia works. Um, there are oligarchs in Russia, but they're not the oligarchs we're talking about. We're talking about sort of securocrats who are Kremlin's old buddies from the KGB day and from St. Petersburg days. And they are not businessmen, they're bureaucrats. They're people like Nikolai Patrushev and, uh, and so on, who, uh, and the sort of people who have been put in charge of top Kremlin businesses like uh, Igor Sechin and so on. And the people who, like Gennady Timchenko, are in charge of selling Russian um, oil and gas abroad. I mean, those, those are members of Putin's inner circle. But the, pro, the point is they've been sanctioned for years. And that's not done anything to change their behaviour or moderate the regime's aggression. So I personally think that actually the you know, sanctioning oligarchs is a bit of a red herring. Freddie, you write the diary in this week's issue of the magazine and you're writing from Lviv in the western side of Ukraine. What's the mood like in Lviv at the moment? Um, well, Lviv is, is a fiercely uh, nationalist place, so it's important for me particularly to remember that I'm getting a very, very biased view. However, everybody you speak to seems to be on a kind of PR drive. And, uh, and I don't say that cynically. It's kind of noble. It's like a sort of, you know, they're all on a, uh, a war effort drive and they're all desperate to sort of say, make the same points to you and, and, and sort of senior officials say the same things as people on the street do, which is, you know, they, they want a kind of shopping list of weapons from various Western governments. Um, they say they need it now. I mean, it's quite rousing to hear it talk, but I do worry that, it, you know, a lot of the people do sound quite fanatical and uh, spending even here uh, too much time on Twitter. I get a little bit alarmed at the sort of, there seems to be a sort of echo chamber between kind of very uh, aggressive, belligerent British commentators and the messages that uh, Ukrainians are sending out. And they are escalating each other's view of the situation and creating quite a dangerous dynamic, I think. The, the mood generally is tense, obviously, and the people are rather emotional, quite a lot of people weeping uh, when you talk to them. And they, they, I, uh, Owen will probably be able to better know whether this is more of a Ukrainian thing generally or particularly to the situation. But every time they talk about the war, they start to well up. And it's not just, you know, hipsters and women that do that. It's, it's, it's the tough military guys and the security people, too. 
And how do they feel about what's been going on in Kiev? Well, they're obviously very worried that lots of people are here from Kiev. There's a huge exodus from Kiev. As I was saying, you know, people talk about it and they start welling up and getting very emotional. It's obviously an extremely tense time for them. Uh, Owen, Freddie mentioned the, the use of social media there. In what ways has social media made it harder for Putin to hide the extent of uh, the bad news on, on the battlefield? And do you think this will affect the perception of the invasion from inside Russia? Um, yes. I mean, clearly the, um, the sort of monolith of popular control, which is uh, Putin's uh, the Kremlin-controlled television empire, is no longer a monolith because people receive their news from social media. But there's a major paradox. People who were senior in television 20 years ago in, Ru- in Russian television were confidently predicting that television is disappearing as a habit. Like in a few years' time, everyone in, in Russia, apart from the very elderly, is going to get their news from the internet and that's going to be transformative of Russia. That was the sort of current theory like half a generation ago. But the most bizarre thing is that it hasn't happened. And it's a really important thing, question when you're understanding the mechanisms of Putin's power is why do people who like could be better informed and there's lots of uh, news sources which are still not blocked. I mean, the, yesterday the Kremlin blocked Doge TV, which is more or less the only independent television station which is you know, available on the internet. They blocked Doge TV, they blocked Echo Moskvi, which is a really big step because it's partly owned by Gazprom, weirdly, but it's actually still quite independent. Echo Moskvi was blocked. But nonetheless, online, you can, especially with a, with a virtual private network, you can certainly access something like Medusa, which is a news resource coming from, from Riga. Anyway, if you want to, with a minimal effort, you can get an alternative point, a viewpoint. But the thing is with most Russians and the Russian consumers of propaganda is not that they're just stupid. It's that they want to believe. They want to believe it because nobody wants to think of their country as stupid and evil and, and unpredictable and crazy. That's just a, on a human level an unfortunate and an unacceptable, uncomfortable place to be. So actually, th- there's a sort of strange psychological sort of feedback loop that happens. I think in lots of Russians' minds, it, it, that th- they they believe the propaganda not because they stu- not not because they're stupid, but because it tells them like a, a story about how good they are. They've become ideological. That's just what I'm being told by various people. That they've that they're sort of hardened into an almost religious ideological mindset, like a like sort of an extremist group. I, I think I think Fred, that's actually completely right because there's some there's a big difference between the quality of the propaganda and the timing of the propaganda from last time, i.e., 2014, when we had like a sort of big run up, sort of two months of sort of you know information warfare, carpet bombing of the Russian people, all about fascists in Kiev and the mission for to save the Russian speakers of Eastern Ukraine from genocide and so on. And all these messages were first sort of hatched in 2014, but this time round, the messaging was you know completely just turned on a dime in a day like as late as last sunday the state broadcasters were still saying that the invasion was western hysteria and so on and the propaganda that was prepared to kind of talk people into believing this sort of genocide narrative it was phoned in it was like the people who created this sort of fake news didn't re- it's as though they themselves didn't really believe it i mean it's, it's, it was extraordinarily unconvincing and that sort of goes back to my earlier point it was like you know, you, you, if you would have to basically be a, some kind of absolute, you know, very gullible person to swallow this wholesale. 
And since it swallows, it's swallowed wholesale by people who are relatively intelligent, not incredibly gullible, there's another factor at play here. I think, Freddie, you sort of put, put your finger on it, is, 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 is that there's almost a personality cult of Putin. And people actually, you know, refuse to believe that he could have made a catastrophic mistake. And that, all, and that everything they're told is, is just a lie. It's unthinkable. Freddie... Nick Robinson's also written in this week's issue about the struggle he faced getting out of Kiev and indeed out of Ukraine. Are you, are you slightly worried about getting out of there? Uh, from a logistical point of view, yes, because there's a the huge refugee crisis at the Polish border and there's a rather sort of shambolic pop-up bureaucracy um, in place. Everybody we've, we've spoken to who's tried to help us has been brilliant and and really kind of put a huge amount of effort in but it's obviously a chaotic situation the border no one quite knows what's going on they don't want to take any risks with us and so on so they are uh it's it's hard to get a sense of how we're going to actually get through the border but i think that'll be fine in terms of risk uh lviv is is not um obviously there is a threat uh and there's been air raid sirens and so on but it is not um under any kind of attack at the moment um, I mean, I think the general view is of, of the major urban places, uh, this will be the last place they'll try to really go for. Uh, Freddie, from from speaking uh, to Ukrainians, when you tell them that you're from Britain, uh, what measures do they want the West to impose? What further measures, I mean? And what's, what do they realistically expect the, the West to do? Well, I mean, uh, as I said, they're on this sort of PR drive, so they they are going for everything. You know, they will tell they'll they'll make some very sort of they, they think that you know you you can uh, get this line back into the government, and I suppose we can in a way. But they they want the list of weapons uh, that they need, and they can be quite specific about that. Uh, and they say huge amounts. You know, there's obviously a large amount of desperation among quite a few of the people about what's going on, and they are adamant that they want to fight. They say they will do it themselves and they want air defense support they say um there are a couple of people quite senior people said they want to be admitted to the european union under the, as a sort of uh, moral emergency and in terms of uh, british people they, they they're, they're very sort of grateful for all the support they have but they very also keen to say it's not enough we need more they're very urgent about it and, and just finally to finish on you're calling us from moscow does it feel like in moscow the sanctions are beginning to bite uh yes they are but they the uh the significant thing about this, the sectoral sanctions the shutting down of swift and all that and the collapse of the ruble is that it's affecting people who have something to lose um i.e the middle class people who are used to foreign holidays uh, foreign clothes foreign cars people who have sort of basically a sort of european lifestyle and moscow is an amazingly sophisticated city it's very very modern in many ways it's much more functional than any other european city that i that, that, that i know certainly much more so than london i mean it's like a really the last decade has been extraordinary for moscow's development so for that class of people who are just used to being sort of functionally europeans in a dysfunctional sort of police state uh, there's always been a disconnect, but the, the, the sanctions have now sort of brought it home. And I've spoken to lots and lots and lots of uh, Russian friends who um, of that sort of class, of those sort of, um, of, the, of that middle class, and they see no future for themselves here in Russia. And in fact, there's been a sort of gigantic rush for the exits. And uh, flights on to 
Turkish Airlines are, you know, are not to be had. One-way tickets cost 1,700 euros this weekend. Istanbul is the only airport that's now accepting flights from Moscow, more or less. I mean, the only European airport. So there's a feeling of very profound d- despair and fear. And actually, all the people who I know who usually go to demonstrations, and I went to several demonstrations over the, the weekend myself, um, I mean, they were very, very small and pathetic. And um, I mean, pathetic is the wrong word. I mean, it was like, it was tragic, in fact. Because you know, you'd have to be suicidally brave to show up to those demonstrations because the police are so effective and the, and the, and the measures against you are so draconian. So it's been terrifyingly, depressingly effective in keeping protests down. And the, um, the protests have now sort of fizzled out and now people are just trying to adjust to the new reality. Um, there's a particular problem for young men and that is if you're between 18 and 27, you actually have to, by law now, register voluntarily for military service without receiving um, call-up papers. So um, there's lots of young people and their parents are extremely worried that their children are going to get drafted and sent off to Putin's war. So there's a sort of general malaise, but um, frankly, it's confined to people who have something to lose, uh, who are also, not coincidentally, the people who tend to be most Putin sceptic. There's not panic on the streets. I mean, there have been huge queues for ATMs and so on, but... uh, um, so far, it's, it's, it's only Russia's brightest and best, um, who are in fact the most vital for Russia's future. But those are the people who are really, truly worried and actually considering you know, a future outside. Thank you, Owen. And thank you, Freddie. Next up, in response to Russia's invasion, Germany has abandoned its Nord Stream 2 pipeline, sent lethal weapons to Ukraine, and, most strikingly of all, has committed to the NATO target of spending 2% of GDP on defence, a fund of 100 billion euros. James Forsyth, who writes about Germany's new reality in this week's magazine, joins us now, along with Stephanie Bolzen, a journalist for Welt. James, you write in your politics column this week that the assumptions that have driven European geopolitics for a generation are changing before our eyes, and that nowhere... Uh, is this shift more dramatic than in Germany? Why has Germany's reaction surprised you so much? I think it is so surprising because for decades, you know, Germany's allies have pushed it to to spend more on defence to meet this 2% target. Germany has always said, well, you know, maybe, but it's difficult, it's complicated. They have now announced that they intend to do so by 2024. I think it's also worth noting that just a few weeks ago, when the UK sent defensive weaponry to Ukraine, they did not asked the Germans to fly over German territory because they thought that request may well be refused. You've now in a situation where, where Germany, in, in, in ripping up decades of policy, is sending weapons into a war zone you know, to, to, to assist Ukraine. You've had Nord Stream 2, a constant thorn in the side of relations between Germany and the United States. You know, Germany has going to come under huge pressure to abandon the project, consistently refuse to do so. Germany is now saying that it won't certify it, and the project now appears to be dead. I mean, these are huge shifts in German policy. And I think what they reflect is, I think there had been a belief in Europe that because the consequences would be so awful, that the era of European nation states invading other nation states was over. What Putin has done by launching a full-scale invasion of Ukraine is to rip up that assumption. And I think what you see now is leaders responding to that. You know, and I think that you know, Schultz in Germany is, is responding very decisively to this moment. Stephanie, how has Schultz's decision to spend 2% of GDP on defence gone down with German people? 
I think what we've seen in the last days in Germany is absolutely astonishing and it's been a complete turning point. So on the 23rd of February, there was a poll where Germans were asked, that's the day before the invasion by Vladimir Putin, Germans were asked whether they supported delivering arms to Ukraine and 68% said no. Now there was a poll in the middle of this week where the same question was asked again and 73% of people said yes, uh, send arms to Ukraine. That shows you that um, really the, the invasion of Vladimir Putin of Ukraine has shaken the German nation to the core. And you see hundreds and thousands of people on the streets of Cologne, of Berlin, of Munich, protesting against the war. I mean, I must say my, my country is deeply, profoundly pacifist because of our history. But as James just said, of course, it was also very comfortable. We had this comfort blanket of saying, look at our history We shouldn't be in charge of uh, military actions. Uh, Germans were hiding a long time behind the Americans. It was a very comfortable place to be. But starting with Barack Obama, this has changed. The Americans are withdrawing. And, well, it's tragic that it has to take something like Ukraine that Germany turns around and finally assumes responsibility. Well, James, so Stephanie just mentioned the Americans with withdrawing there. Do you think that now Germany will be at the front of a sort of new European anti-Russian coalition, you know, pushing other countries like Italy, for example, to be stronger in sanctions and, and con confronting Putin. Do you think Germany's role is now one of leadership in, in Europe on this? I think ultimately Europe is going to have to take more responsibility for European security because you are going to see a gradual US drawdown from the continent as it shifts its focus more towards dealing with China. And I don't forget, think there is any sustainable form of European security architecture in which the biggest economy in Europe, Germany, doesn't play a significant role. I also think the other thing that the other consequence of Germany deciding to spend 2% of GDP on defence is it will massively increase the pressure on those European countries that do not spend 2% of GDP on defence to do so. I also think there are kind of big profound questions as well about the fact that Germany is, you know, Germany is now going to embark on a, on a huge dash for renewable energy. That is also going to completely reshape European energy markets. Lots of renewables projects that would have not been viable beforehand will now be viable because you have senior figures in Berlin telling their European partners that they think that in two years their, their aim is to be not importing Russian gas. But James, what what are these realistic alternatives for a gas supply? How long will Germany still have to be dependent on So, so on for example, gas? Germany has no terminal which can receive liquefied natural gas, which is one of the alternatives to Russian pipeline gas. You know, you can get a floating terminal going in six months. Yes, you would be paying higher prices for it, but you know, I mean that is probably a price worth paying for the to to given Russians actions. So that that's one alternative. You also have the option that which, you know, will be controversial in Germany because it would require going against what the law currently says. You know, Germany could keep its nuclear power plants online for longer. And then there's obviously the options of more renewables. All European countries with a North Sea coastline can do a lot more in terms of offshore wind. You can create kind of man-made islands and put wind turbines on them. It, it works essentially as a form of energy. And Stephanie, in Wolfgang's piece, he says that the German media is now reassessing Angela Merkel's time as chancellor, particularly her energy policies and her special relationship with various leaders. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You have to reconsider Angela Merkel's 16 years in office. And um, 
one of the reasons why Germany is now confronted with a massive problem of supply of energy, of heating everyone's houses and just uh, keeping the industry going, the car makers and the machine makers everywhere, is the lack of, of, of gas and, and electricity, therefore. And one of the reasons is Angela Merkel's snap decision back in 2011, after the Fukushima disaster, to phase out nuclear power stations. So, in fact, this year, the three last nuclear power stations are going to be decommissioned. The big question now is, and have in mind, I mean, this is all so absolutely flabbergasting, you have a Green Party now in government that has to consider whether they maybe switch on the nuclear plants again. You have a Green Party that will now decide if actually fossil fuels, and especially coal, will be brought back heavily to provide the energy needed in, in Germany. So this has been one of the things that really have to be now reconsidered in terms of Angela Merkel. The other one, which is very important as well, is that she always avoided to send any clear message what the global military role of Germany is. So there were times back in 2014, for example, that the then President Joachim Gauck at the Munich Security Conference said, it's time Germany steps up, we can't run away and anymore, we have to stand firm. Merkel never picked it up, she never commented on it, she avoided it because she knew Germans don't like to talk about their armed forces. They actually, yeah, they know the Bundeswehr is in, in Afghanistan, but they don't want to know too much about it. And Germany was very long under this comfort blanket and somebody, I mean, somebody, Vladimir Putin brutally pulled it away. Speaking of uh, reassessing former chancellors, uh, we, we read this week that members of uh, Gerald Schroeder's private office have resigned because he still hasn't distanced himself sufficiently from Putin. Uh, how has that gone down in Germany? Gerhard Schröder obviously has been a target for criticism for a very long time. I mean, he had only just left his office in 2005 when he already went through the next door, which was the Rosneft uh, offices of uh, the biggest energy provider um, in, uh, in Russia. And he was just last month, it became known that probably he will be nominated for the board of Gazprom. So Schröder has been for a long time a very controversial character and is now really firing back at him. There has been a lot of, just to, just today, became known that Borussia Dortmund, where he was um, an honorary member, has suspended his, his membership. He's getting a barrage of criticism. And But you know, Schröder, there's a question if he really cares. He hasn't spoken much. He, he actually went for the German government some weeks ago for the uh, Foreign Secretary Annalena Baerbock and said she should stop the sable wrestling towards Russia, she should be more diplomatic, she should be a bit more clever, that she goes first to Moscow and then to Kiev, because she went first to Kiev and then to Moscow. So he has been arrogant. I think he's just beyond anything um, that is related to public opinion in Germany. And James, you conclude by saying that what Putin has done has essentially united the West in many ways. How important a role do you think Germany and Schultz is going to play in that? I think Germany will play a phenomenally important role because it is the largest economy in Europe. You you change the regional balance if Germany is playing an active role in European security. The best outcome would be for the US to be able to draw down from Europe but not exit Europe. And I think if Germany is spending 2% of GDP on defence, you remove one of the Trump cards, to use the phrase, of people who basically, of, of Americans who want to say, well, what, why are we in Europe? They won't even pay for their own defence. That argument has been 
neutered by this. I think that changes everything. I think it makes it much more possible for the US to remain involved in European security, but in a slightly different way from the way that it was, you know, in the first Cold War. And I think that that is a, a very healthy development because I think it creates the possibility of a unified transatlantic response to Russia and will stop some of the arguments that we've seen in recent years, which, you know, yes, Trump put them in a, in, a, in a particularly unpleasant and bombastic form. But you saw even from the Obama administration, which is, you know, what, why should we be spending money? You're a rich and prosperous continent to defend you when you're not prepared to do that to defend yourselves. Finally, Stephanie, as significant as this shift of tone in German public debate is, do you worry at all that uh, when the price of energy perhaps starts to become much more expensive, gas or, or any alternatives become harder to obtain, in other words, when the really hard choices start appearing, do you worry that public opinion might start to change back again? Well, the, the <clears throat> controversy around hard choices is already emerging today. Uh, and this week, because there is resistance in the SPD and in the Greens to what actually uh, Olaf Scholz has announced. So and even on the on the government level, it's not all uh, easy and nice. When it comes to the public, of course, people will feel the the crunch. There is already very very high inflation, as there is in Britain. Energy prices are fifty percent higher, and they will only get even higher. What the German government is doing, for example, they uh, opened the oil reserve today. So they will make sure that they somehow keep the cost of energy supply for consumers under control. But yes, it will be it will be very painful for consumers in Germany. It will be a, a complete. How can you say it's a. It, it's such a momentous watershed moment where not only ideologically or politically people need to get their head around it, but also in their everyday life, and they will see far more emphasis and money spent on, on the Bundeswehr. Suddenly we are not very far from, from a war and a conflict zone, and that will be for a very long time. We don't know. This can go on for months and years. James and Stephanie, thank you very much for joining. Thank you. And finally, elsewhere in the magazine, Harry Wallop wonders why some of Britain's oldest and most distinctive brands are trashing their reputation. They're selling out, he says, changing the very thing that made them special in order to appeal to foreign millionaires. He joins us now, along with popular culture expert Nick Ead. Harry, in this week's magazine, you write about the many classic British brands that seem to be going down market. Which ones in particular seem to be embracing the tacky side? Well, there's a whole lot of them. They're sort of they're clustered around old London Mayfair, which used to be kind of the epicentre of understated classiness. You only have to go for a stroll kind of up Burlington Arcade, around Savile Row, and you come across Huntsman, the old tailor that has had a tie-up with a Hollywood film, The Kingsman, and has embraced all sorts of naff accoutrements because of that. Church's Shoes, there's Barber, which has been doing it for quite a few years now, and Penhaligons, which I thought, sort of thing my grandmother had in her downstairs loo, but has gone all very bling. And that's the thing. I think it's a lot of blinginess that has slightly tarnished these brands. And who, who do you think it's designed to appeal to? Well, I think that, that's the issue, isn't it? It's trying to win over a whole new class of customers, uh, particularly uh, international billionaires and millionaires. So Chinese and Russians who have lots of money, certainly, uh, but maybe not so much style and taste. And Nick, as a brand expert and popular culture expert, 
Have you uh, noticed this trend? Uh, I've definitely noticed the trend because, you know, as Harry says, it's all about consumerism and it's all about the the dollar or the pound or the ruble in that respect. It's all about making money. And the fact of the matter is that these brands need to look at how they're going to expand themselves and diffuse themselves. And they have a... Uh, a small sort of customer base but they need to increase it to make as much money as possible but when doing that they lose the essence of who they are and they become quite tacky they're less sexy and they are more uh, consumable as a suite like a suite but are the brands still making money from this yes they're making loads of money you know if you think about it most of the brands make most of their money through accessories whether it's sunglasses fragrance you know those are the big things that make lots and lots of money. If you buy a dress from somewhere like Miu Miu, you're not going to have many people who are going to buy that, but they are going to buy the sunglasses and the fragrance. The same thing happens and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, on that point, I mean, Harry, do you think it's the, the case that the traditional consumer base who used to buy Barber or, or whatever, uh, is that dying out? Well, uh, in some cases, yes, they are quite literally dying out because they're they're elderly. And and my grandmother, who used to have Penhaligons in her downstairs loo, is no longer with us. So the, the customers obviously do have to be replaced. Uh, and the question is, is how quickly you want to go about replacing them. And this was the issue with Burberry, who is the most sort of famous case study of what is rather snobbily but rather wonderfully called prole drift. Uh, not my term, a term by a great American author called Paul Fussell. And he, he established this phenomenon whereby basically you can get the wrong sort of customer, the proles. Uh, and, and it happened with Burberry and it happened catastrophically uh, when it tried to embrace a slightly younger crowd. Uh, it briefly was very successful with its scarves, relatively cheap scarves and baseball caps. And it just got embraced by football hooligans, plain and simple. Uh, and in fact, uh, there was a wonderful phrase, there was a, a, a landlord up in the northeast who banned any customers seen wearing Burberry because he said it was a badge of thuggery. So you can go too far, uh, and, it can, and Burberry's brand was completely trashed in the space of a couple of years, and it took about a decade to kind of reverse that and win it back, and Burberry is now back on the catwalks. It's back to being uh, an established international fashion house but there's still a slight ever so slight taint uh, that it's lost its true heritage as something uh, rooted in the English countryside English aristocracy amongst you know the first world war veterans who use their Macintoshes to keep the rain off in the trenches I don't think it really has that anymore it's now just one a another global fashion house and Nick, what lessons do you think other brands can take from Burberry's story who might be wanting to kind of return a bit more to their original heritage? Well, I think they should really look at their heritage and really go back to basics and think about actually who they are, how they can also talk to a new demographic of people, new customers, and how they can keep that sort of story going. Because it's all about the story. People, when they buy something that they want to keep, they want to say, oh, this is Burberry and this is why I'm, I'm wearing it whether it's the designer, whether it's the fabric, but also it's the backstory too. If you haven't got that, then you don't have an essence of, of what the brand is. So Nick, are there examples then of, of uh, classic British bands? We've just heard about how Burberry have managed to sort of salvage its reputation uh, somewhat over a 10-year period. But are there examples of British bands that have successfully 
managed to rebrand, perhaps modernise, find a larger audience, but have also maintained their integrity at the same time? Well, I think one of the biggest brands out there, well, is Liberty. I think Liberty is a very interesting brand because it's got that sort of real heritage. We all know about Liberty Print. We all know about the, sort of the, 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 the hall, the gorgeous hall where you have the scarves, etc. And everybody saw that as maybe their grandmother would have it or their auntie had it. It's something you bought for them at Christmas. You know, it would be lavender. In a, in a Liberty bag. And the way that they've sort of really sort of looked at how they're establishing it and changing it has been really interesting. Looking again at the heritage, actually going into their archives and seeing some fantastic patterns that they used to have that maybe not been refreshed for many, many years and bringing them out and sort of curating them in a really straight, a really strategic way. I think also looking at how Liberty homeware from fragrance and candles and scents has become something of a luxury. You know, before you wouldn't probably go in there and buy actual Liberty brand candle now you go in there and you you will spend £100 on a candle from Liberty because you know it's been made in a really great way it smells great it lasts long and it looks good so I think as a brand they've done a really good job and Harry how popular do you think kind of Britishness is globally at the moment as, as a brand well I think that's a really good question because as we've seen uh, with all the discussion around uh, Russian oligarchs and sanctions is is that one of the most powerful sanctions we could have is uh, a social cultural one that the reason why so many have moved to London is not just because we are the centre of being able to do high class divorces for Russian oligarchs and, and, <laughs> and possibly upmarket money laundering but this is the place this is the place to go shopping to dress yourself very well to have, you know to buy yourself a, a car that was once a british brand no longer almost certainly german and so yeah i think london is has has despite you know all the, the worries about brexit has remained very much uh, a cultural center uh, for international billionaires and and yes that comes with all sorts of problems but it's a great thing to be celebrated and british brands should make, should make the most of the fact uh, that people with very large wallets are prepared to come here and spend lots of money and uh, Nick, we're looking at, uh, I think, a pretty bleak future for, for high streets of St. James and Mayfair in, in many ways. Uh, what do you think the future holds for some of London's most famous shopping streets? I think it's really difficult. Obviously, everyone's pivoting to online, as we know. But I think there's always going to be a place for bricks and mortar. And I think, you know, it has to be that we get more people into the city and to actually have an experience when they are sort of consuming what they have. It's not just, it's not, I don't think people are destination destination shopping anymore. It's very much about they come into London, they want to have a whole experience. And so it's really important for the Crown Estate and St. James's to make sure that they're actually giving that to the right customer and keep them coming back for more. Nick and Harry, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to The Spectator to read the articles we discussed on the podcast? And if you subscribe today, you'll also get a £20 Amazon gift voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. I'm William Moore. And I'm Lara Prendergast. And we do hope you'll join us again next week. <laughs>